2: Welcome to Wood Talk. Now, here are three guys who came, saw, and saw it again until they ran out of wood Mark, Shannon, and Matt. All right, it is show number 469 for April 29th, 2020. This is actually an unscheduled show. We decided ah. to, to do a little bonus show. For you guys If it's uh, on schedule then how did I get here? Uh, you, we just happened to be in the same place at the same time <laughs> We just kept texting
0: you and texting you and texting you
2: Until you finally showed yeah, up he, The morning of, he's like, oh, "What are we recording today? Uh,
1: I All fell right. asleep like at 8.30 last night Which is actually like right before you guys were texting Yeah And true. I woke up and I'm like, oh crap <laughs> I, got <a> thing, <laughs> oh, I got a thing to do I got a thing to do today yeah, Good thing I woke up because I didn't set an alarm either yeah. But I got kids so it doesn't matter Nope, they are the
2: alarm so we figured we'd do an extra little bonus show. We figured a lot of people could use a little something extra to listen to, so why not do an extra show? It's all Q&A today, uh, just some of the topics that we'll be talking about. Uh, resawing by hand, using a wood filler, strength of rabbit joints, soaking wood, table outfeed, table outfeed, table size. <laughs> Nothing <laughs> redundant about that at all. Uh, and cutting a cross hatch pattern, uh, but before we get to that, we want to remind you that Wood Talk is brought to you by Rockler. Rockler has been helping customers create with confidence for 65 years. Head over to Rockler.com and check out the National Woodworking Month sale. Getting close to the end of the sale, actually. It runs through the month of April, so don't miss it.
1: We have no one's there. What is so this suspension?
2: What is yeah, there's no one there, but you could still tell them about Patreon. You're such a, you're such a dork. <laughs> you're terrible at this. Sorry. You know, <laughs> I didn't mean to hurt your feelings. Was that, no. was that too much? <laughs> <laughs> Words hurt, man. man. Did, I, did I just cross a line there?
1: <laughs>
2: uh. Hey, look, yeah. your, your wife called me a hussy on Instagram. So, well, I mean, you are. <laughs> I kind of, I kind of <laughs> am. I I said to Nicole, I'm like, that is the first time
1: I've been called a husband.
2: (laughs) And that's, that's friggin' hilarious. I I about spit out my water when
1: I read that. (laughs) She's a, she's a little more fun than I am sometimes. Well, most times, especially online. If if you read something funny that I said, Lindsay probably wrote it. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Very good. Anywho, if you want to help support the show as well, you can do so by going to patreon.woodtalk and signing up to become a patron of the show when you sign up i will try and say your name mm-hmm. can you say the link correctly this time though because
0: you, <laughs> you said patreon
2: you said patreon.woodtalk
0: uh, whatever yeah it's a subdomain <laughs> we're that big to patreon.com <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> slash wood <laughs> <talk>. <laughs> patreon kicked us out so we had to create a patreon subdomain <laughs> <laughs> on woodtalk
1: <laughs> patreon.woodtalk <laughs> <laughs> okay yeah it's
2: all very, very confusing so patreon.com slash woodtalk i think is what you're meant to say
1: There'll be links in the show notes. Just click on it. No one types yeah. the stuff in any way. To find it. Just a uh,
2: message Matt on Instagram and ask him what the link is. He'll he'll help you out.
1: I probably have it open oh, is that, in Safari on my true? phone <laughs> and I was copy and paste it directly from there because uh, I have all the most commonly requested links of things always open. So I can always paste them in. Really? That's smart. I know. That That's probably smart. Lindsay's idea. No, 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 that was that was all me. <laughs> That was all me. There's always, there's always a tab open for my bandsaw mill plans. Uh-huh. There's always a tab open for the log arch details. And uh, I guess now I have to open up this patreon.com slash woodtalk and have that as well.
2: Why don't you have a page on your website with common links? And then you just make that your default profile link? So that you could just tell people, check the link in my profile.
1: Wait, they have some kind of fancy Instagram celebrity person? He's got that link tree thing. <laughs> Lincoln bio? <laughs> <laughs> you don't need that. Just put a page on your
2: website. Come ah, on. All right. Anyway, ah, enough inside baseball. Uh, so all we have is questions. Uh, it's all email questions. Shannon, why don't you kick it off?
0: Sure thing. This is from Chris. He says I just finished resawing a ten quarter by nine inch by forty one inch piece of cherry by hand with my uh, five uh, points per inch handsaw for a blanket chest top. I've been resawing all the parts out of some slabs that I had lying around for some 15 years. The First three cuts in narrower pieces for the sides have gone well, ending with fairly flat cuts. This one, however, started off nice and flat for the first eight to 10 inches, then started bowing gradually. Over the remaining 30 inches or so, the bow grew and grew until I got to the end of my cut and the saw broke out of the wood. The bow had grown a full half inch. So I was a little thrown by the terminology here. Um, so he's deviating off the line. He's curving over to the right or to the left, and he's deviated by a full half inch by the end of the cut. <clears throat> he says, I know the conventional method is to cut in halfway from each end and meet in the middle, but my first few resaws I went straight through and was able to track the line very well. The cuts had no bow whatsoever, so I did not change. So basically, why? Um, yeah, uh." First of all, um, as you get really, as you start to climb above six inches wide, um, you will find that the five points per inch handsaw really, first of all, it really slows down and it suddenly becomes a lot like work um, because there's just not enough. The gullets aren't big enough to transport the sawdust out of the kerf because the board itself is so wide. So as you, um, he didn't say the length of the saw, but we're probably talking a 26, maybe a twenty. Eight inch saw at most. So, as you move forward on the stroke, the teeth that exit the other side of the, of the, the board dump the sawdust out. And then as you pull back on the stroke, the teeth dump sawdust again. And what you find is that some of the teeth never actually dump their sawdust because the board is too wide and those teeth don't actually exit the board. Moreover, there's a heck of a lot of sawdust building up inside the kerf. So the bow is the saw trying to find the path of least resistance. It's trying to find its way around that built-up sawdust that's in there. And it doesn't take much. And as he said, it started just kind of gradually. And then over time, it kind of compounded until it was a full half inch off his line. So the first thing I'll say is when you see this happening, don't keep sawing. Stop. (laughs) Because it's not going to magically get better. No matter how much you kind of tweak your wrist or turn your body or try to steer it back into place, it's already gone off the rails. You need to stop because it's 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 exacerbated by the fact that you're sawing through a nine inch wide board or, you know, even a four inch wide board. You think about the typical saw cuts we make through like the thickness of a board. It's maybe an inch thick or three quarters of an inch thick. And, you know, the angle, of the saw presentation, all that stuff at most, you're sawing through like one and a half inches of wood. Now multiply that by nine, you know, and it gets out of control real fast. So traditionally, yes, it makes more sense to actually start on one end of the board Saw about the midway point, flip the board in for in, start the cut again and saw and meet in the middle. Um, That will kind of help you to reset things and kind of keep back on the line. Moreover, it's really hard. I want to know how he made a through cut. How is he holding the board in the first place? Because if the the vise is clamping the board, try sawing through the (laughs) vise. Like it's applying pressure and it's closing the kerf on you, which is also going to cause the saw to deviate. And it's going to create a, a much fatter curve at the end. So I'm kind of curious to find out how he was able to do. Unless he like moved it halfway through and clamped above it or something. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing you want to do, other than flipping in for end, you want to flip from one side to the other. So as I if I put the the board in my leg vice and I'm standing, you know, on one side of it, like the inboard side of my bench, I'll saw for you know a minute or two. Then I'll walk around to the other side and saw from the other side. And that kind of ameliorates any deviation you may see in the cut and kind of uh, helps to correct any wandering you may have seen. So there's there's little things, little kind of checks and balances throughout a resaw that you need to be watching that line. And if it starts to deviate, switch to the other side or flip the board end for end. Don't just keep sawing because it's just going to continue to get worse. So, you know... Most of us just have that 26 inch saw, that five points per inch saw. It doesn't mean that you can't resaw in um, a a board that's wider than about six inches, but you need to make conscious efforts to clear the sawdust. So I I would get into a rhythm where like every 10 strokes, I would then on the back stroke, I would pull it almost all the way out. So just the very tip of the saw is in there and it would dump the sawdust and you would go back into, into work. I would also take that time to run a little paraffin wax over the blade. It just keeps things lubricated, the things running a little bit faster, um, and it makes the physical work a lot easier. So just get in that habit of stopping to clear the sawdust, wax the saw, and go back to work, and you'll find that deviation is not going to happen. Now, there may be a thousand other things that are going on. Um, what I didn't read is Chris included a bunch of other data points in here, mm-hmm. So I think the problem is that the sawdust is not clearing. Um, if you have bad form, you're not aligned properly on the saw or the saw is set improperly, you're going to have these issues as well. So this is not the only answer, but for Chris, I think that's your answer. you got to get that sawdust out of the teeth or it will deviate on you. So you know how
2: in your woodworking you've determined that like, okay, I've flattened boards before. I proved to the world I can do that, but I got a planer <laughs> because because I'm not an idiot. <laughs> So when it comes to something like this, this sounds miserable and I get it. People love this stuff, right? Do you still love going through this process as opposed to just picking up a bandsaw and getting it done?
0: Honestly, it's my favorite thing to is do. Is it really? That's my favorite tool in the shop is my 48 inch resaw. Um, and, and some of it is perspective. Mm-hmm. Like I had a, a, an underpowered three quarter horse grizzly 14 inch bandsaw. I put a riser block on it. Stupidest thing I've ever yeah. done. That saw is not designed to take a 12 inch resaw. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It just, it doesn't work. Sure. And, and actually what he's experiencing, what Chris is experiencing happens on a bandsaw as well. You get that barrel cut that happens because too much sawdust builds up in there and the blade deviates around sure. it. It was miserable. <laughs> it was so bloody slow to cut with that bandsaw. But here's the other thing. I, I started looking at what are my alternatives? Maybe I'll get a 20 inch bandsaw or a 19 inch bandsaw or, you know, some other bigger bandsaw, the capacity wasn't that much more. Um, show me a power bandsaw that's not in like an industrial shop that will cut a 24-inch wide board. I got on my Not backyard. for less than 10 grand. <laughs> yeah, I'm going. I'm going <laughs> yeah. <to my> <laughs> so Matt, where do I get the plans for that? Oh, do you have a I, link to that? I do, I have it here on my phone. <laughs> like I
2: always Too bad you it. don't have a page with all the links on there. That'd be convenient. Too bad. It's a
0: shame. You can't just point me to like <laughs> link in bio. It was, so it, it w- I don't even think it's like a, a therapeutic meditative thing because it, it requires a lot of attention yeah. to resaw. Mm-hmm. You, you can't zone out, but it cuts that saw that I use cuts so fast. And because of what I do is so one off, I'm rarely am batching out parts. If I have to resaw a bunch of different boards, I'm usually just resawing that one piece, sure, yeah. then moving over and jointing it and forming it into a panel. So it just, it, it's, it's fun for me. Um, some of it is the, the saw. I made the saw myself. I, I kind of like yeah. that. But it's also so much faster and more accurate than my Grizzly band saw ever was. And that's not a shot against Grizzly. I've, I've got a Grizzly planer. I've had a lot of Grizzly tools. They make good tools if you buy them on a Tuesday and you, you get is that I the tip that's, that's There used secret. to be an old myth that's when you get the good ones there used Two to be things. something floating around that if you bought them on Tuesday the QA inspector on Tuesday it was better than the guy on Thursday I remember that <laughs> in like a lumberjocks forum that like, 10 years yeah. ago you don't
1: buy fish from like a restaurant like whatever day because it's the last day before the next shipment or something like that <laughs> right
0: it was caught on Monday don't buy it on Friday yeah yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah it, it's, it's weird I actually find better performance out of my handsaw than I ever did on my bandsaw okay. but I have never owned a bigger bandsaw. I've never owned a more expensive bandsaw. I can't remember what my 14-inch was, but it was not expensive. It's less than... It's
1: very interesting to me like the parallels of this like actual handsaw resawing versus the, you know, bandsaw stuff. It's all Mm -hmm. exactly... You're describing exactly Mm -hmm. the same things that would happen on a bandsaw. You would have drift if you're cutting too quickly and you're not able to transport the the dust out of the curve. That's like... The same thing with like gullet size. You got to have a big enough gullet. That's why you don't want to resaw with like a eight TPI blade, because it'd be there all day.
0: Well, and and to his to Chris's example, he's using what you would typically find as a as a coarse rip saw, as a five points per inch rip saw. That's not coarse enough. Mm -hmm. I've resawed a lot of boards with five points per inch. The secret for me is I have a three points per inch saw, and it's a forty eight inch blade. Mm -hmm. So I've got a longer throw with each stroke. It cuts really fast. And, you know, again, I don't know how fast your your saw, you know, if you put a nine inch board through your bandsaw mark, it pr- probably would cut pretty fast. Mm-hmm. I can do nine inches, a nine inch wide board. I'm probably cutting, I don't know, every 10 seconds of sawing, two inches through the board, maybe three inches through the board. Sure. My Grizzly did not cut that fast <laughs> yeah, yeah, at all. Well, some of those,
2: the smaller 14 inch ones, Can be so much more finicky if they're not set up right or, you know, just it's a finicky tool at that size for Resaw. I just find it interesting how like we all have our own limits to where we go. Well, that's ridiculous. (laughs) I would never do that. But, (laughs) but we're all, we all have our own crazy. (laughs) We're all spending time doing something that other people think is ridiculous. Like instead of just going and buying a chair, (laughs) like sharpening our tools. or sharpening our tools like we do every one of us is guilty of doing something that's a little bit ridiculous by someone else's standards so i find it even amongst ourselves it's funny where we each draw that line of what we consider
0: oh yeah and and how we will directly contradict ourselves from one thing oh, to right the next like i will spend a lot of time resawing a board but i spend more than 10 seconds sharpening a tool and i think you're not <laughs> right <laughs> so yeah
2: it is interesting
0: Okay, uh, next
2: question yeah, here is from um, is from Jim. Jim says, what's the best type of wood filler that will accept the dye stain? I know I can't hide a mistake 100%, but would like to get close. I haven't used a dye before, but want to on this project of maple. Thanks. Okay, so just to kind of cover the bases here, always try to repair with wood if you can, right? Whatever mistake or flaw you have, you're far better off trying to get a little wooden patch in there that's going to be the most uh, easily disguised thing that you do. But whatever you have, you clearly need to use wood filler. I'm going to recommend TimberMate. I don't know that it's the best. I know it's performed the best for me. Uh, they have a bunch of different flavors. You can get one that's specifically for maple. I think it's um they call it maple,
1: beech, and pine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just sitting sitting here thinking you like like eating it like with a spoon out of the jar. It's like different, a yogurt Different flavors. <laughs> yeah. I say flavors all the time.
2: And I think people get annoyed by that. I'm not, I'm not implying that you should eat it or taste it. Uh, is it
1: uh is it safe to eat? I would not
2: do that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't recommend it. So they have a maple beach and pine uh, filler. <laughs> now their colors, what I like about them is their colors are actually really decent matches for the natural color of, of the wood species. And then when you hit it with finish, it absorbs the finish readily. So you kind of get a pretty close match. It will also accept a stain or a dye. The thing to keep in mind though, there is no wood grain in this. So whatever you do, even if it's the right color, you still may have a fairly obvious repair, uh, because you don't see grain lines. You don't actually have, uh, the texture of the wood. So depending on where you're doing this repair, you may or may not have like a whole lot of success with this. If it's a really obvious gouge in the middle of a table, well, guess what? You're going to see it. And you may have to kind of get creative. I don't know if you've ever seen people do this where they might do some kind of a patch like that, but then they actually will draw with uh, like a dark pen or something, draw grain lines. It's amazing how much that can just fool the eye. As long as the background color is pretty close to the same and you carry the grain through the patch, it, it works pretty well. Uh, so this stuff will will probably be one of your better choices. There might be other things out there, um, but I think you just got to maybe test it out on scraps, see how it accepts it, but just be prepared for the, the the fact that once you put that dye on there, it's not going to be exactly the same. It's going to look a little bit different, but it'll get you pretty close. Um, they also have a second type of wood filler you might try. It's uh, I believe they call it natural, but it's their tint base. So there's really not a whole lot of color to it. I think it's basically like a um, whitish grayish color and you could add whatever color you want to it to try to get it to the color that your your final piece is going to be. So you may add dye to that first, pre-tint it. But again, test it. You take a little bit of that, put it on the on the surface, test a, a regular piece of wood with the dye on it, see if those are closer. You could you could probably cobble together a system that that gets you the best results here. But Timbermate wood filler is the one I'd recommend. Have you guys used anything else or recommend anything else?
0: in my I've always you know so much of the other stuff doesn't take finish mm-hmm. or doesn't absorb finish and Timbermate like that was their marketing thing so I kind of always just bought that and didn't bother with anything else
2: well the other good thing is it's water based and it dries in the can if you don't use it but it's not like gone you you just basically spray some water in there put oh. a little water put the lid back on <laughs> that's where that was gone. Like, yeah, yeah what, it basically it
1: dries in the can and it's garbage just the no, good no, thing no. about it you I always used have to use fresh um, can
2: right <laughs> I used to use, uh, what is it, F- Fama Wood is another brand. And you have to have like, uh-huh. there's a, a pretty nasty chemical um, thinner that you use with that. But sometimes that stuff would harden and then it would be like game over at that point. This water-based stuff, I don't use it very often. So a lot of times it will dry in the little can, uh, but all I have to do is moisten it, put a little water in there, it reactivates. Um, mm. Those things will last forever, which is the, kind know. of the nice thing. So you don't need to buy that much, but. So um, everybody
1: knows, but, don't throw away your dry can.
2: No, 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 not a definitely not a timbermate. Hang yeah. on to it. You could reconstitute it.
1: That probably would have.
2: At what point
0: at what point do you say okay, now I'm going to use this wood filler as compared to trying to fix it using wood? Cuz I I find myself 99% of the time filling gaps if I have them when I have them. Let's, let's, let's be real here. When I have them just using like little wooden wedges or things like that. That's what um, I do. Where do you go? Nope, this is too difficult. I could
2: could tell you one good example for me. I did box joints on my under workbench cabinet, right? So um, case style box joints. So there were a lot of them and they're pretty big. I had a couple of hairline gaps. Probably could have just left them alone. Like that little black line that's there post finishing probably wouldn't be that noticeable. But I was like, ah, I kind of, I kind of want to see just a nice smooth situation up here. So I grabbed, I grab just a little bit of the walnut filler, um, drive that into that hairline gap, sand it. And it just disappears because it, it is literally a hairline gap. Uh, trying to fix that with wood probably would have done more harm than good. Just in terms of like, yeah. would, would the end grain be facing up there? Does that match up the way that I wanted to, it would have looked worse. With wood in that situation. So I think the smaller the repair, the more effective the filler is, the bigger the actual square inches of, of repair space you have to cover, the worse the filler will look. If that, if that makes sense.
0: Moral is go big or go home. If you're going to screw up, do it with style. Yeah. Well,
2: then a lot of times, you I mean, you, when you do have these mistakes, maybe it's just a little bit of tear out. Um, people look at that and go, well, I don't know how to fix that with wood. Look, it's all wonky. And if if you don't save the off cut, the piece that flew off, how do you fit it on there? Well, you actually have to do more damage to get it prepped for a patch. So you may have to grab a chisel and flatten it out, turn it into a a nice little tapered shape, but something nice and flat that you could then pop a little patch in there. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Yeah. it's a lot of work. It is a lot of work, but, you know. I'd
0: much rather resaw by hand than that (laughs) crap.
2: See, that's the kind of work that repairing an error is a lot of work. But I I, I like that work.
0: (laughs) I I could just make a new piece,
2: but
1: instead I'm going to repair it. All right, Matt, you're up. All right. We got the Andrew. Uh, Hypothetically or hypothetical, I guess. Say I mill a 2i4 off a freshly felled tree. Conventional wisdom says wait one year for each inch of thickness for air drying. Conventional wisdom is wrong. After two years, it's dried to 10%. Eh, It probably is. Then I soak the wood in water in a PVC pipe for a couple of months and then take it out. Am I right back to where I started when I first milled the board? Uh, So I'm going to say I don't know, but I will kind of go into a little more than that. It it depends if soaking the wood in water actually like brings back the bound moisture in the wood. Mm -hmm. If it doesn't, if it's just you're putting more free moisture back in there, then it would be a lot faster to dry again because that free moisture is the stuff that comes out quickly. And then the bound moisture is the stuff that takes a long time to come out. So depending on my uh, not knowing the actual answer to this. <laughs> <maybe>. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you can. I don't know. Does the well, uh, air moisture drying, actually come back?
2: I was going to say, does air drying do anything in the way that kiln drying does to the cell walls that allows that bound moisture to let go? So you would assume that if the cell walls are still intact, that the water can come back in to some
1: extent. I guess I mean it's going to reform hydrogen bonds everywhere. Why are we doing this by the way? <laughs>
2: I mean I know it's a hypothetical and so I guess he's just trying to determine like can this wood really pull back in?
0: Uh, <laughs> situation is is Andrew has a spare bit of PVC pipe and he thought I could put a board I in know there and do it
2: this. <laughs> I'm just looking at this hypothetical situation going, why is this happening though?
0: Well, I know that a lot of Windsor makers will actually store logs in like a pond, yeah, like in order to keep the moisture. So, but they haven't been dried mm-hmm, already. Yeah, yeah. Um, So that, that's more of like maintaining the status quo. I don't, I would imagine with enough time, the free water would, you know, the bound moisture would go back. It would have, Especially because it is air dried. Yeah. Right. The cell walls haven't been hardened. So I would imagine, you know, over what time period, I, I don't know. Um, who
1: knows? <laughs> this is like reference to like rehydrated toast. Is that, this, is that what we're doing? Maybe, that, <laughs> Maybe that's where we're at. I think so. Okay. <laughs> I'm glad.
0: The answer, Andrew,
1: is yes. <laughs> any, uh, Just yes. Any wood scientists out there, feel free to send a kickback and let us know if, uh, you know, bound moisture comes back or not. Maybe that's just you know, a hobby. Yet,
2: Andrew, go ahead and do yeah. it. I mean, it sounds like a good hobby. I just dry wood and then I wet it again. <laughs> then I dry it again. <laughs> then I wet it again.
0: <laughs> See? That's going to be the next big thing. This is so fun. Next big thing. Everybody wants kiln dried. Nope. this is, is re-wetting. Yeah. Reconstituted.
2: This is, this is thrice-dried uh, white oak. It's very, uh... That's very it. Good stuff. Oh,
0: that's what it you is. You heard it here for first. It's yeah. not... <laughs> there you go. It's not about the re-wetting. It's the drying a third yep. time that makes thrice, it Thrice-dried very thoroughly dried
1: now Oh, it's like seasoning yeah yeah like a cast oh, iron people skillet. Just think you gotta season your wood
0: <laughs> oh boy oh boy. <laughs> how about we move on? Yeah. <laughs> let's let's move on <laughs> so jason said uh how are rabbit joints strong like for the top of a case if you put a rabbit in the top edge of the side piece of a carcass and drop the top end of the rabbit and glue it together how is it strong asked because I can't find a long grain to long grain interface the long grain of the top mates to the end grain of the side and the long grain of the side mates to the end grain of the top I get that it's stronger than just an end grain joint uh, since the side uh, since this the shape of the side carries the load but how does this joint stay strong I've used it for an oak bookcase and it's rock solid oh but how so I I, I think Housed joints in general, the general term for dados, rabbits, and grooves would be housed joints. They by themselves aren't necessarily strong, but when used in conjunction with other rabbits, i.e. a case, they are strong. Um, There is a greater surface area, no doubt. That's why a rabbit joint is stronger than just a butt joint, because you've got that little L shape that it can nestle into. So now you've got two glue surfaces that are interfacing. But if you were to just glue, you know, in his case, take the top of that shelf and drop it into a rabbit on the side, but only had one side. So you just have an L-shaped piece. That would not be very strong. You know, a little bit of torque on that and it would pop Mm -hmm. apart. But when you put that rabbit on the opposite face, the other side of the bookcase, and then put one on the bottom and you make a box, all four of those rabbit joints together now share the load. And the glue certainly helps keep them together. So it's a lot stronger there. But let's be real, a lot of times when cases like this are made, there are additional strengthening going mm-hmm. on, like brad nails. Um, or the um, you look at a bookshelf, for example, a lot of times there is a middle shelf that is also dadoed in place, and that provides additional stiffness to the entire structure. So it's not so much about the individual joint, it's how the joints are used in the overall system of joints to make that box. And where is the load? In the case of the top on a bookcase, there's really no load there. Um, it's just a spreader. It's keeping the sides apart, essentially. There's not really any load going down on the top of the case, or if there is, you know, it's knickknack type stuff. That's um, not really that uh, that much load, it, but it is preventing racking of the case by closing the circuit at the top. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's what I'm going to say about that. Like a lot of the stuff
1: we make too is pretty static as far as the loading goes. Mm-hmm. So. The only time I think right. you're going to see a problem with this joint configuration is like on moving day. When you like you <laughs> pick it yeah. up on its corner and you drop it or something and you get all those crazy racking forces and then it goes. Bloop,
2: That's when the Ikea together. furniture fails.
1: Yeah. I mean, you can get away with it. static loads. Is nothing. It's dynamic sure. loading. That's where you get some serious things going on. Like, you know, chairs. Things people sit on. Yeah. and Rock around on yeah, them. Right. Lean back in and stuff like that.
0: Well, I think there's. The best thing you can do for your case is to not put that little Ikea eighth inch hardboard backer yeah. on it. Put like a real, yeah. you know, half inch piece of plywood, even a quarter inch piece of plywood. That's so much. will stiffness. create so much structure and rigidity <laughs> to true. that. Then it can't. But the thing
2: um thinking, thinking about the <laughs> rabbit much. joint, you know, I don't know mathematically or engineering wise what, what this is, but it just strikes me as a piece of material that's held in on two adjacent surfaces. So you got glue on the flat and then glue on the end, right? So even though we're not adding any more face grain necessarily, you're gripping it from two sides. Just kind of feels like, especially when you, like you said, Shannon, you add up all four of those joints going around the case, just makes it stronger to, you know, because it is gripping it from two adjacent surfaces as opposed to just being dropped on top and, and only being attached by one surface. Uh, but also this joint comes in handy a lot with plywood, right? And plywood, while you can call it end grain, that plywood end grain cut is really a mixture of probably side grain and end grain. A little half,
1: little half and half actually. <clears throat>
2: going on there. Yeah, you got a little half and half. So that joint in plywood can actually be pretty dang strong uh, because you do get some mixture of, of face grain glue when you expose it that way, uh, as opposed to you know just dropping it on top and doing a butt joint. So stuff to think about. Okay, who's next? Me? Me. Okay, this is from Sean. He says, how would you go about cutting a cross hatch pattern? Think multiple half laps to form a grid that's larger than a dado stack can accommodate. My dado stack only allows me to cut dados at three quarters of an inch, but I want to cut a cross hatch panel that uses one inch material, so each half lap needs to be one inch wide. I'm trying to find or build a jig that will allow for repeatable cuts since if one is a hair off, the entire thing will not fit together. So marking out each won't work. Each cut won't work. Uh, My thought is to use a half-inch dado stack with a box joint jig, but I can't figure out how big the key needs to be and the placement of the key on the jig to get the one-inch cut. Any suggestions or plans anyone has to set something like this up? Can you tell Rockler to come up with something? Okay. (laughs) We'll try. We'll try that. So I, I... I like where he's going with the box joint jig concept. And I, I don't understand why the box joint jig concept would not work for him. Uh, if you have a half inch dado stack and you make your key, the key has to correspond to the opening that you create with that half inch dado stack. So why can't you, <coughs> excuse me, create a key that's a half inch. Do your, you know, like your, follow the same setup procedure for, uh for making a box joint jig but you're going with a half inch so that when you, I'm trying to think the spacing would allow you to use the same key, but you're going to butt up against one side of the key, make your first cut, then slide it to the other side and butt up against the other side to make your second cut. And now you've got a one inch wide uh, dado. Then you lift it, put that one inch wide dado over the half inch key, do the same thing up against one side and then slide up against the other. And you're doing it in two passes that way. So unless I'm not thinking about this thoroughly enough, it feels like you should be able to take the exact process for making a box joint jig, but just to adapt it to the fact that you're making a gap that's twice as wide as the key. And it's a two cut process. That's where my mind went. Yeah. So I think you're yeah. on the right track. I think you just have to, to see that process through. It would always be two cuts referencing from one side and then the other.
1: So get on that rockler. Yeah,
2: they're working. Well, I, I mean, they've already got a box joint jig, I guess. I guess you could yeah, probably, guess, yeah, you could use, I think you can use a regular jig for this, right? Like you would just have to make that first cut an exact. Yeah.
1: Hmm. The first cut might be a little goofy. The, I the think. first but one, the first cut in there, you're good to go. Yeah. The
2: first cut's going to be the trick, but you might be able to employ your table saw fence for getting oh, that's that. That's true. You right. You might
1: even use the sled to or the jig to actually make that first cut. You can use yep. the fence.
2: Yeah. Use the fence,
0: establish that first oh, cut.
2: Once you're locked you in, now you use the jig
0: brilliant all right prop i feel like i did this like way way back remember i talked about how like i got started in woodworking with the router workshop guys (laughs) i feel like and they had a little project where they made a crosshatch like trivet and it was just using the you know the typical keyed fence box joint jig type Mm -hmm. deal and it was just a matter of you put a spacer in to offset for that for the crosshatching and you were good to go. I think I have some of those trivets floating around yeah. the house somewhere. Yeah, and I
2: think the only difference between this and a traditional box joint setup is the fact that you're doing two passes to make a wider cut. But if, but like me and Matt were just saying, if you make that first cut the width you need it to be, then you could still use a standard half-inch box joint jig set up for the spacing you want, and you should still be able to pull that off. Yeah, Let us know. Try it, Sean, and, and get back to us.
1: I mean, is it too much work to just use the fence for all of them? I mean it's an even number one inch <coughs> half inch they're even I mean how how precise do you need those things to be apart from each other
2: mm, sounds like he wants it pretty precise okay I mean can't you use a series of spacers and, and just yeah, do it at the table saw that. too
1: there's a lot of ways to do this now yeah. that we talk about it
2: hmm mm-hmm. <laughs> we could break this down we could really give him some thoughts on this how about oh, just man. get a CNC
1: I mean you could also do that that would be also very effective <laughs> yeah
2: <laughs> It's going to be my answer to everything for now on. Now that I have oh, one. Please, uh, now that I'm please in that club.
1: That. Yes. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh,
1: shoot. All of us non-CNC peasants have to figure out how to do all this stuff manually. Ugh. Sucks to Ugh. be you guys. <laughs> all right. All right. This is from Mark. It says, on the interwebs, I see outfeed table sizes from 16 inches deep and half the saw width to a full sheet of plywood across the entire saw's width. I break down full sheets on the ground, so the ladder is overkill. I do however occasionally make cabinets and pieces that require long ripping. How do I find a happy medium? Just do whatever makes you happy, dude. <laughs> it's, really, I think with the Alfie tables, it's really gonna depend on like the stuff you're making and like the size of your shop. Can you commit that much floor space to an alfie table? And do you really need an alfie table that is that big? When I did mine Mine's uh, two feet deep and it's the entire width of the saw because making it partial width of the saw doesn't make sense in the space because it'd be like this weird like nook of nothingness. Mm -hmm. So that gave me some more free space and if I wanted to use the outfit table as like a work surface, I have more work surface to actually use it as which in a smaller shop, that little bit of workspace really does help a lot. And then as far as like the length of things I'm cutting, most of the stuff I'm cutting for furniture parts are all going to be under four feet. So my outfit table gets me just fine there. If I want to do like an eight foot long piece of material, I would just set up an feet support like a stand. Like you would normally set it up like all the time for every cut without an feet table. Mm-hmm. But I do that so rarely that it doesn't really matter to me. And I have this fancy shop hack where all I do is just flip the guard out for my jointer. And that serves as a little stand for the work piece. The support as it's coming off the saw. Ew. So I never have to actually set up a stand like I said. <laughs> Flip up the jointer thing out and you're good to go. You can catch an eight footer.
2: Nice. I might be in the, I actually may be doing a new outfeed table. And I think at a certain point, the outfeed table, if you've got the space, it just becomes another piece of shop furniture. So it's not just about, you know, catching material. It can become your assembly table. Then you have a great storage opportunity there. So I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of us will make really big outfeed tables because it's, it's just another opportunity for organization.
1: Are you thinking of changing the size just, on yours, just out of curiosity?
0: So big that you can push the stuff out of the way and still use <laughs> That's, part of the outfeed table as an outfeed table. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know what? That's
2: what it's like at Mark Adams. He's got outfeed tables that not only cover the back end of the saw, but they wrap around to the left oh, yeah. side of the saw. Uh-huh. So you've got like so much support all over the place. They're, they're pretty incredible. Um, you know, I don't know for sure. I might even go smaller, Matt, just because I, I really yeah. would like to have a little bit of storage and I kind of want to discourage the use of that space for too many other things. Well, but, when
1: you get like super deep like that, it's hard to actually make effective storage. Cause it's like, well, you'd have like a four foot deep drawer.
2: You just need very, very big slides.
1: Then <laughs> <laughs> um, you got to have four feet in front foot open so you can actually pull the drawer out.
2: Yeah. Well, and it's also one yeah. of those things where Google
0: corner drawer slide and you're starting <laughs> in the right place, there you
2: go. but you can really, at least the way mine is set up, cause I got the jointer on the extension yeah. side. Um, I can really only access this thing from two sides. So it, it really does make me have to like think about, okay, what, what kind of storage solutions actually make sense on something of this size and shape just to make it efficient. So making it a little bit smaller might not be a bad idea. I mean, I've always thought about, you know, the, the, the collapsible type, but imagine you know you've got a smaller little cabinet that's there that gives you support for 99% of what you need. And then maybe you have a little uh, flip top thing extension that's on the very far end of it. Oh sure. If you need a little extra support, yeah, Yeah. you could flip that sucker up. So or even a pull-out. You know, it doesn't need to be completely flush with the top. By the time you get, you know, four or five feet out. You just need something to catch the board. It doesn't need to be perfect, so you can have a pullout yeah. tray.
1: So when you let go, it doesn't like flip up and hit you in the face. <laughs> exactly. Yes. <laughs> Which is, yeah, you know, I I didn't have the Elfie table for like a year and a half or two years. Cause I like put off making the Elfie table, mm-hmm. and oh my goodness, it was amazing to have it again. Because I'm like, I don't have to like literally hold the board precariously off the back of the saw every single time I finish mm-hmm. a cut. And just, I'm
2: like, yeah, yeah, this is nice. Just safety alone. If you've never, if you've never used one before being able to, at the end of a cut, give it that little kick, you know, Let just go, I don't, I don't have to follow this through all the way. I just give it a little kick and then I pull my hand back and I'm nowhere near the blade compared to like, Oh, this thing's going to flip up. I better catch it. Like there's way too many safety issues. Hold, you it, don't hold it in support. place quick.
1: Turn off the saw. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. If I'm feeling that safe, otherwise, right. you know, Maybe pick it up and lift it up back over the blade toward
0: you. (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) Good good stuff. Okay. All right. Well, then our last question comes from Jason. Um, I find it funny because I have notoriously mentioned that I never know the numbers of Stanley planes, but he says, is there a resource (laughs) for what the numbering system corresponds to? I'm not talking about a number four is a smoother or a number eight is an enormous joiner, but. What's a 121 or what's a number 60? Is there a list you can point me towards that makes each note to know what each number means? Um, yes, this is um, one of those ones that goes back to the early Matt Vanderlist days. Go to supertool.com. That's Patrick Leach's Superior Toolworks site. Mm-hmm. And right on the homepage, you'll find this link for Patrick's Blood and Gore. Um, it's one of the reasons that you probably are not finding this on Google is because I never searched for that. You Google Stanley numbering planes, and and I couldn't even remember it, but I happen to know to just punch Patrick Blood and Gore into Google, and I got the <laughs> website. So he has an exhausted list with links for planes number one through six hundred and eight. And by the way, he asked, "Does this does a router plane have a number?" That one I know. That's a seventy-one, and you can find it if you go to Supertool.com. And I'm just saying go to supertool.com because the actual blood and gore page is like something different slash Stanley BG slash S-T-A-N-0-A, whatever. Just just go to supertool.com. If you're not familiar with Patrick Leach's site, it could be a great place to uh, get into some vintage tools as well.
1: Hmm. Something also worth noting about that too is that you're talking mostly like the Stanley numbering system. So if you're looking at like yes. other manufacturers, they probably got their own numbers, but they're going to be like Stanley equivalents is
0: what you're going to see. True. So. Yeah, like Miller's Falls planes are kind of the same, but not quite. Just to keep things fun. Yeah, it cannot be the same. Got a little bit different. Some
2: of these descriptions are pretty funny. Like yeah, he's, he's got like it's a lot of tongue
0: oh, in yeah. cheek. Like yeah. this is a stupid thing we pa- should never buy. Painful
2: datos, more damn block planes, <laughs> che- cheesy
0: transitionals. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, there's. There's no lack of opinion in this uh, yeah. editorial. page. it's great,
2: and it also looks like it was uh, coded 15 years ago and never changed.
0: Oh, yeah, like a little longer than that. <laughs> yeah, maybe 20. Well, what's funny is it always—it's said currently under heavy construction for like nine years now. <laughs> it's like a Google product being in beta, always being in beta. Yeah. Okay, cool. That's, that
2: actually looks like a good resource. Alright, so that just about does it for us today. Hope you enjoyed the little Q&A show. Remember that we are sponsored by Rockler. Rockler is a family-owned business since 1954. They're your go-to source for high quality and innovative woodworking tools, finishing supplies, hardware, lumber, and expert advice whether you're building a simple bookshelf a custom desk or new kitchen cabinets Rockler has everything you need to make your next project a success visit rockler.com and use the code woodtalk all one word to, no, it's just woodtalk not woodtalk all one word I gotta space things out a little bit when I say that use the code woodtalk that's all one word to receive <laughs> free shipping on most orders over $39 I see somebody t- typing it in going woodtalk all one word no it's not not working <laughs> Uh, maybe they should enable that one as well. <laughs> Just in case?
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for sponsoring the show,
0: Rockler. We appreciate it. I love you. You do very much. Um, we also love it when you guys send us questions. So please do that. Go to woodtalkshow.com. Go to the comment form. Fill out your question there. Or go to Instagram at woodtalkshow. and You can ask us questions there. Uh, you can become a patron over at patreon.com slash woodtalk. And you can submit questions there, and we sometimes tend to (laughs) give those a little preferential treatment. You know what I mean? Sometimes we do. Sometimes we do. Finally, you can find us all individually on Instagram at Matt Cremona, Renaissance Woodworker, and Wood Whisperer. Excellent. Excellent. Don't really have a social call to action for this extra show, guys. Do we need a social call to action? Send us your questions. We could take a break from that. Just post any random picture you want and put hashtag (laughs) woodtalk469 and
1: that'll be fine. Kind of weird things we're going to get.
2: Whatever you want to do. All right. Well, thank you for listening, everybody. And we will catch you next time.
0: Happy extra show, everyone. (laughs) Goodbye. (laughs)